Earlier this year, Mitch had encouraged us for the year 2024 to make our resolution to lean into Christ and lean into his people. The passage that we're going to be in today is, goes right along with that initiative to lean into Christ and lean into his people. So let me give you an outline on where we're going. So verse 6 is the one command in the passage. The command is to fan into flame the gift of God or to live out lives of faith for Jesus. That's the command in verse 6. At the beginning of verse 7, Paul recognized that there is a real hindrance to that command. And so he gives us the context for that command. And that context is fear. Fear of what? The cost of following Jesus. We'll speak more to that. And then the rest of verse 7, Paul's going to give us maybe his biblical, you could say, counter or counsel to that context, which is fear. That theological reasoning of why fear shouldn't hinder us from living out lives of faith for Jesus. So that's, that's the destination. We'll start on our way there in verse 6. Verse 6, for this reason... I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So we have to do a couple things here with this passage. Number one, what is the gift? What is the gift? Number two, what is meant by this, this statement through the laying on of my hands? And then number three, the imagery of fanning into flame and how that all ties together. How that all ties together. So the gift. Let's start with what the gift is. Now, while Paul speaks about spiritual gifts oftentimes in the scriptures, I think the gift here is faith. The gift that Timothy, who he's addressing, is to fan into flame is faith. And I know that because if you flip back up to verse 5, faith is the subject. I am um, as I'm sorry, I am reminded of your sincere faith or your faith, which is sincere, that faith, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and now in your mother Eunice. And now I'm sure dwells in you as well for this reason. What reason? The fact that your faith is sincere. I've seen it generationally come down from Eunice to Lois to you. I'm for this reason, fan this gift, which is faith into flame. The gift is faith. Paul says this other, other places too. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The gift of God. It's not a result of works. It's not something you figured out one time. It's not something you worked for. It's not something you stumbled upon. It is a gift. God is giving us something, and that something is faith. Which is interesting because he's going to say, God gives, and now you must do something with that gift. Typically, when we think about gifts, right, we just had Valentine's Day. When we think about gifts... Fellows, on Valentine's Day, maybe you got your wife some chocolate. You got her some flowers or some jewelry, right? Those things are meant to be selfishly indulged. We think about gifts that way. The only purpose for this gift, right? Food ain't good for nothing but eating. Amen? It's only good for eating. My wife gets on me all the time. Stop eating. It's only good for eating, right? 
it's meant to be selfishly indulged. Flowers for smelling or looking, jewelry for wearing. But I want you to think about faith as a gift in another way. And we say this all the time when we say, man, that kid is gifted. He's got a God-given gift to carry a basketball or to, to play the piano. They've got a God-given gift. Those types of gifts are a little different, aren't they? They're not just meant to be selfishly indulged. There is a burden almost to use and to develop that gift, to share that gift with others in service to others. We consider it a tragedy if that gift is unused. We even typically say things, man, with the right coaching, right? We put our kid with the right coaching, with the right context and development. He can go all the way, right? He can go pro. He's got a gift, but it still needs to be used and developed. And I'd like to think about this gift that we call faith in that way, given to us by God, and yet there is a burden to use and to develop this gift, which is faith. I think that makes sense with the imagery. Let me get there in a second. So the gift is faith. What is meant by in you through the laying on of my hands? Now, Paul clearly is not saying this is some type of gift that's been given to him and he's dispensed it out through the laying on of his hands. Clearly not what he's saying. We just read Ephesians 2.8 and the bulk of his theology is that this is a gift from God. Rather, I think, through the laying on of my hands is meant to affirm the faith that is in Timothy. We see this all throughout the New Testament on the laying on of hands as an affirmation of faith. Peter and John, when they go to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, are affirming the faith of the Samaritans. They're not dispensing the Holy Spirit. They're not the ones giving this gift of faith. They are affirming the faith that is already there. In large part, this is the responsibilities of apostles and by extension the elders of the church to affirm the faith of believers. So something like membership, that's exactly what we're doing. We're saying this person is a kingdom outpost for the Lord. Our, our spirit bears testimony with their spirit that, they, that their faith is, as Paul would say, sincere. That's what's meant by the laying on of hands. And then we get to the imagery of fanning into flame. So this has a lot more context in the ancient world, right? A fire is the most useful tool that you have in the ancient world. Fires are useful. They are effective. If you want to cook something, you need a fire. If you want to give light to your house, you need a fire. You want to bring heat. They can destroy. They can purify. They can preserve. Fires are useful, effective things in the ancient world. There's a lot of prep that goes into making a fire. So bear with me. This is part of the imagery that Paul is trying to present. You need a lot of things, right? You've got to do prep work. You've got to contain this fire. You have to get sticks of many different sizes. You have, you have tinder, which is like dried grass or hay, and that's what you're going to put your ember on. And you have a hand drill, which is a long stick, and you have a plank with a circle notch or a circle with a V notch at the end so that your shaft can go in. And as you drill down, it creates an ember through the friction. And then you take that ember, that smoldering ember, and you put it in your tinder and you enclose it in. And if you've seen people do this, they'll blow 
to try to create a flame. And then in between breaths, they'll do, they will fan the flame. Fan this ember into flame, which is a great picture of the meeting of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. God is the one who's producing the ember. God gives us the ember and is asking us to fan into flame this gift of God. God does something and we do something. You know what this dispels, this imagery of faith dispels? It dispels a lot of things. Number one, faith is not a crockpot. Faith is not a crockpot. Faith is not something that you can set it and forget it. Or let me say it more clearly. Faith is not something where you said it and forget it. You remember that one time I prayed that prayer or I came to church or I took communion or I was baptized. And faith is not a crockpot where you said it and forget it. Jesus says this in his ministry. There will be many on that day who say to me, Lord, Lord, you remember when I said it and forget it? I put the, set it on warm and everything and I walked away for hours. I, I did that. I, I prophesied in your name. I went, I went to church. I did the things. That's not faith. It's religion. That's not faith. It's religion. Remember, I did the ceremony, Lord. And on that day, he will say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. I never saw you around the fire. I never saw you around the fire. Fires are things that need constant attention. They involve some cost, some work, some sweat equity. It's not a set it and forget it. That's religion, not faith. Faith also isn't a thermostat. Faith also is not a thermostat. It's not something, so, so many of us are, are chasing some kind of emotional experience where we're on fire for God or something to that effect. And waiting on God to do something, Lord, Lord, you just need to change my heart. You need to do this. You need to bring me from here. Lord, if you could just set the thermostat at that on fire for God level, right? Just set it and, and when it gets there, let me know. Faith is not a thermostat. You know what God's saying? Your legs ain't broken. Fan the flame. Put fuel on the fire. Be attentive. Faith is not a thermostat. And so we, this leads us to ask ourselves, what are we feeding the fire? What are we feeding the fire of faith? What kind of fuel are we putting on this fire? Are we fanning the flame? Are we expecting different results? But we're putting on wet wood, green wood. It's not complex, it's just hard. It's not complex, it's just hard. You know, I liken it to something like losing weight. It's not complex, it's just hard. But we spend so much time trying to focus on how to flourish, right? Even when we try something like losing weight, we, we got to have the right watch, we got to have the right shoes, the right equipment, the right protein powder, the right everything. It's not complex, it's just hard. God's given us the means, the common graces, His people, His promises, His word. He's given us the means to flourish, to fan into flame the gift of God. I, I love this analogy. Uh, someone was sharing me with, uh, recently, it was this guy asking his trainer, should I eat white rice or brown rice? He says, stop eating donuts, 
right? Stop eating junk food. That's your, let's worry about that first. And then we'll worry about the other things. It's not complex. It's just hard, right? But there's a, there's a real obstacle in verse 7. There's a real obstacle to that, and that's called fear. Fires are scary. Fires are scary. In verse 7, he says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear. Fires need fuel. They need attention. They cost something, and that is scary. The cost of following Jesus is scary. There's a real suffering, a real cost involved in following Jesus. But my encouragement to you this morning is to meditate on the cost of not following Jesus. It will always, always cost you more not to follow Jesus. It will always cost you more. So spend within your means. Spend within your means. You can afford to follow Jesus. You can afford it. It might cost you everything that you have, but you can afford to follow Jesus. You might have to lose some friends. You might have to adjust your schedule, adjust your budgets, your lifestyle, but you can afford to follow Jesus. You cannot afford not to follow Jesus. You cannot afford it. That's an investment that never yields a return. You cannot afford it. And by the way, not following Jesus also has some of those losses. Also means you have to lose some friends, adjust your schedules, your budgets, your lifestyles. Except that the very thing that you're chasing, which is a life apart from God, God will give to you and you will, for an eternity, pay off that debt. You cannot afford to follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the cost of following Jesus is steep. But the reward is deep. And compared to anything else, cheap. Amen? Fires, fires are scary. Fires are not fully in our control. There is a real fear in giving God control of our lives, of our happiness, of, of where we're going to go. So maybe not necessarily focusing on it from a negative aspect, but oh, the places we shall go when we give the Lord our days, our lives. Control over our potential blessing. There's a real fear in that. In 1837, in Eaton, in Georgia, a young woman named Carolyn went to be baptized. She confessed to the minister that she had struggled in letting go of worldly amusements and pleasures, especially dancing. And she said, I'm ready more than ever to give my life to Jesus. And when she gets into the water, she's, a, she's there with her friend Julia. Julia is not a Christian. Uh, she is described as her bosom friend from the world. And... Something electrifying happens at this baptism. It's down at the creek, and she gets about halfway and asks the minister to stop. And she turns around and she says, Farewell, young friends. Farewell, Julia. And the effect is electrical. People are weeping that are unused to weeping, as it's described. And, and Julia is, is loathing every minute. And after she comes up out of the waters, Julia says something to the effect of, Pray for me, old, Jul uh, old Carolyn. Don't leave me. Pray for me. There's a, and I think that encapsulates so much the fear that we have in following Jesus and letting go of our days, 
our control, our pursuit of happiness. You know, James 4.13 says something similar to this. It says, Come now, you who say tomorrow we'll do such and such, and we'll go into a town, make a profit. And then at the end of that um, verse, you know, it says, You should say, if the Lord wills, we'll go to such and such. And at the end of that passage, he says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And for a long time, I struggled in, in meshing those two passages together. It felt like two different scriptures. One on, you know, you should say the Lord wills, don't boast about tomorrow. And then that last part about the sin of omission. Putting both of those together, that's two different ways to live our lives. Two different ways to live our lives. There is... The one way where we can make plans and confirmation bias, everything towards that end. I don't really have time for that. I, I'm, I'm trying to do this thing. Don't you see me trying to do this thing, Lord, or person? And then there's the other in which we give the Lord our days, trust in his providence and say, you know what? Let me actually focus on doing what is right. That's what faithfulness is. And there's a real fear in giving up our plans, our, our, our sense of control and saying, Lord, you can have my day. I will do what is right. We're in good company, by the way. Moses says something similar in Exodus chapter 4. He says, Lord, look, it, it's not me. I'm not the one you're looking for. Uh, I'm not eloquent. I don't talk too good. Uh, it's, it's the anti-Isaiah 6 passage. Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Moses says, send somebody else. <laughs> Literally, oh Lord, please send someone else. And we could be like that. There is a, there's a real fear in trusting in the Lord and seeing where we will go, what he will do. It will mean we have to adjust all of our plans, our level of control, and where we'll go. But there, though Jesus says something like this, and he has a warning for us in the parable of talents. If you remember the parable of talents in Matthew chapter 25, he gives one five, he gives another servant two, and another one. And he comes back. To the one and says, Lord, I knew you were a harsh master. I knew you, you reap where you didn't sow. And so I just buried it. I just buried the, the faith. I didn't fan it in the flame. I just buried it. I crockpot it, Lord, because I knew you'd be back for it. He says, you wicked, you slothful servant. You wicked and slothful servant. You knew I reaped where I did not sow. And he does not have good words. He casts that servant out to outer darkness. My encouragement, brothers and sisters, is let's be in the business of fanning this flame. It's not a crockpot. It's not a thermostat. It's a flame. And we have to fan it. We have to feed it. We have to meditate on the word of God both day and night that we may be like a tree planted by streams of water whose fruit yields in season and leaf does not wither. That's what we need to do. That's how we fan this Flame. So that's a real hindrance to living out lives of faith. The fear of giving up control, the fear of the cost of following Jesus. So in verse, the rest of verse 7, if you look with me, he gave us not a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and self-control, which is interesting. So let's look at those. Why should we not let fear be a hindrance? Let's look at those together one by one. He gave us a spirit of power, which means we've been given the ability. That's what power means. It doesn't mean strong. It means we've been given the ability to do this thing. God isn't asking us to do something that he isn't empowering us to do. Is 
that make sense? He's not asking us to do something we can't do. We've been empowered. We've been given a spirit of power. We have the Holy Spirit, and that means something. That doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean nothing. That means something. We've been given a spirit of power. This is the promise that Jesus told his disciples. Wait in the city until you are clothed from clothed with power from on high. This is part of the new covenant people. We've been enabled to live lives of faith with new hearts, new understanding. This is the promise in Ezekiel 36. We're, he will remove the heart of flesh, remove the heart of, I'm sorry, remove the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, and cause us to walk in his statutes. We've been empowered to do this very thing, to fan into flame the gift of God. Paul says in chapter 2 of this, past, uh, of this book that we've been strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He also says in 2 Corinthians 12, My grace is sufficient for you. Paul's got this thorn in the side and he asked the Lord to take it away three times. And God's response is, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul says, then I'm going to boast in all my weaknesses. I'm going to boast so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, for when I'm weak, therefore he is strong. We've been empowered to do something. Fires are scary. Yes, they do cost something. But much like firefighters, we've been given the equipment to face them, to stand up under them. We've been given a spirit of power, not one of weakness. We've been enabled to do this. But we've also been given a spirit of love. And I, pun intended, love this. We've been given a spirit of love. We have the desire to do this. Fires are scary, yes, but love overcomes Fear, Because we're not just firefighters, right? Firefighters, they show up, they've got the equipment, they're able to stand under the flame. But they don't have any emotional investment to the things in that house. I don't have to tell you, if you have loved ones or little babies, if your house is on fire, you're going through, around, over whoever stands in the way. To get your loved ones. Fear is not even on the table. You're not worried about the, the structural integrity of that house. You're not worried about the heat of the flames or, or the toxicity of the smoke. You're going in that house. You're emotionally invested. You love the ones that are in that house. You think not of yourselves, but of the ones that you love. Love overcomes fear. Love is defined by God. 1 John 4 says we only love because he first loved us. And then he describes how God loves us. God loves us through suffering by sending his only son to be propitiation for our sins. He, he loves us through suffering to display the glory of God for the salvation of man. And that's how we love too. Fan into flame the gift of God. Fires are scary, but we love is greater than fear. 
Love means pursuing courses of action which are primarily in the best spiritual interest of others. Because that's how God loves us. It means going into the flames and ignoring what your neighbors will probably insist is unsafe. Or ignoring what neighbors might insist is comfortable, best, right, even politically correct to do so. We also have been given a new understanding and new eyes. We regard no one according to the flesh, as 2 Corinthians says. There's not Republican, Democrat. There's not liberal, conservative. There's not whatever you want to put in the blank there. There's only saved by the grace of God. And those who are not. Those who are on their way to an eternity of hell. So we regard no one according to the flesh as ambassadors of Christ. And love commends us towards God. Love fears an opportunity for us to get closer to God. 1 Peter 4 says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial among you when stuff happens. Don't be surprised when that happens. But the end of that passage is entrust yourself to a faithful creator while doing Good. Let us then, let fear bring us closer to God. But we've also been given a po- uh, the spirit of self-control. And I wonder if you think that's a weird that that's there. Self-control itself is a weird word. You've always been in control of you. No one has ever been controlling you. So... But yet we recognize the reality that there are passions waging war within us. Romans 7 says something very similar. I do the thing, this is Paul talking, I do the thing I don't want to do. I don't do the thing that I do want to do. Who will free me from this body of death? We have a responsibility. Fires are scary, yes, but we have a responsibility to do what is right. We've been given the power, the ability, and we have a response to that ability. That's what responsibility is. We have a responsibility to do what is right. Passions make good servants, but they make for poor masters. Passions make for good servants, but they make for poor masters. The purpose of passions is rooted in our beliefs. We believe something that informs our passions. And they're meant to drive us toward a particular action. So take something like fear. So I'm painting in broad strokes, but biblically speaking, fear is, or passions are meant to drive us towards the worship of God and particular actions associated with that. So something like fear, right? If, if we come upon a bear, right? Fear is meant to drive us towards particular actions for our safety, for our control, our survival. That's what they're meant to do. It exists because we're vulnerable and there's things that can threaten that vulnerability. My point is, we need fear on a physiological level to do certain things for us. And yet, yet, we have a responsibility to subject those passions and that fear and prioritize our fear to God. We have a responsibility. We cannot live lives driven by passion. 
Because our passions will not be accountable before the Lord. You will. You will. And you still have the responsibility to do what is right. We will stand before the Lord, not our passions. Peter says this in the same chapter, 1 Peter 4. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in, in the flesh, arm yourselves with that same way of thinking and cease from sin. Whoever, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions. For the time has long passed. You've done that enough already. And by the way, how's that going for you? We can't live lives driven by passions. Because at the end of that verse, look, the world's surprised when you don't do that, when you don't just follow your feelings. In verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Because our passions won't stand before the Lord. We will. We will. This is the very thing that Paul talks about in Titus 3 that we've been saved from. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We've been given those spirit of self-control. And oh, that's so needed when it comes to something like fear. That's so needed when it comes to something like fear. Because feelings can feel like reality. Feelings can feel like reality. And yet we have to subject those, prioritize those to the fear of the Lord. That's what fear is meant to do, by the way. It's meant to drive us to worship the Lord. Don't fear those who can kill the body but can't touch the soul. Fear, fear the one. Fear the one who can cast the body and soul into hell. Fear the Lord. Shun evil. Prioritize that fear above all else. We're to live out lives of faith. Fear is a real hindrance. And we have a responsibility. Having been given a spirit of power, we have the ability to, to be sustained under that fear or that trial or that cause. We have a heart of love, meaning I'm going in the house. I don't care what happens. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to preach the word. I'm going to seek the, the salvation of sinners. And we have a, in the midst of that, a responsibility to temper our passions because they will deceive us. They will deceive us. It is not reality. They are feelings. And we need to put our faith in facts, in the promises of God's word. We have a responsibility to control ourselves. And so let me, let me close with, with this thought and this application. To be Christians of conviction, compassion, and courage. To be Christians of conviction, compassion, and courage. As we lean into Christ, as we lean into his people, as we go as those with the spirit of power, love, and self-control, let's be Christians of conviction, compassion, and courage. Conviction because, as Paul says later in this passage, he says, I'm not ashamed. Yeah, I'm in chains. I'm suffering. I've been mocked. I've lost everything. I've paid it all for him who paid it all. Because I know in whom I believed. I'm convinced down to my bones. And that's nothing you can take away from me. 
I know how this ends. I know the cost of not following Jesus is too much. I can't afford it. So I'm convinced down to my bones who God is, who I am, what His promises are, what He's put me on this earth to do. We need that type of conviction. Like Mama said, faith ain't saying it's raining, it's bringing an umbrella. Conviction does that. Let's be those Christians who bring the umbrella. Not just say it's raining. Conviction does that. Let's be Christians of compassion. Christians of compassion. We're driven by a spirit of love. We're driven by a spirit of love. We love not the things of this world which are here today, gone tomorrow, as Fanny Crosby says, whose joys are but a name. We love the Lord. We, we, we love those made in His image. We love God. We love His goodness. The glories of His goodness. We think not of ourselves, but our neighbors. And do what is right with the moments and days that He sets before us. And in this love, we love God's providence over and above our own plans. And that's nothing that anybody can take away from us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. It might cost everything we have, but we will not lose that love. And, and finally, let's be Christians of courage. Let's be Christians of courage. Courageous Christians. I feel like conviction and love play straight into that. Courage is not the, and you've heard this before, it's not the absence of fear. It is standing in the face of the fear, knowing, convinced of what the right thing is to do. It's the only path that is right. It's steep, but it's the only path that it's right. Brothers and sisters, my prayer is that for, for the rest of this year, for the rest of our lives together, let's cast our cares on Him who cares for us. Let's not let fear be a hindrance to fanning into flame the gift of God. Let's together... Draw from his strengthening power, walk in his love, and stand in the face of fear. And more than that, on a positive note, let's be in the business together of fueling this fire, of fanning into flame the gift of God. When we do that, if you, if you want a bigger, brighter faith, when we do that, we, we will be... As he says, a city on a hill, a lamp on a stand, a light among the nations. Let's lean into Christ and lean into his people.